We'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, that even when we're faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. We do pray, Lord, as we look at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, you'd remind us that we rest securely in your hands, only because of what you've done for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we left off in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, where we talked about the fact that even when we're faithless, God does remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And I mentioned that the term faithless is probably best rendered unfaithful. So the idea is even when we're unfaithful, God remains faithful because of the covenant he made. And this is, of course, very reassuring to the believer who at times can question their salvation, wondering perhaps they've dropped the ball so far as that God will never forgive them. But here we see that God will never let his elect go once again. Now, we did talk about the fact that some scholars will claim God remaining faithful and saying that he cannot deny himself is evidence that one day God will judge But I showed you in the context of 2 Timothy, the context of really the New Testament, the better understanding is that God isn't faithful to judge. He certainly will. But the the, uh, emphasis here is certainly that he's faithful to forgive because he's entered into a covenant with those who are his. So with that, I want to turn now to some warning passages. And these are passages that are often used by Arminians who will try to claim that Christians can lose their salvation. And these are texts that we have to take very seriously because, as I'll lay out for you, that they really are warnings that are used by God to keep the elect within the fold. They keep the elect believing and persevering in the faith. And so we're going to see that the warnings in Scripture are used by God so that he can keep his elect, 100% of them, within the fold and believing until the last day. But let's look at some of these texts. One of the primary warning passages is found in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. Let me begin there. The writer of Hebrews says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, let me pull up my pointer. I want you to see that there are four different ways in which salvation is described here of an individual. So what you want to realize is that as the writer of Hebrews is penning what he's penning before us, he's not describing four different events or four different people who are saved or four different instances of salvation, but he's talking about an event of salvation from four different aspects that are all related. So, for example, first of all, notice he says, those who have once been enlightened. Okay, and I'll I'll labor a little bit as to what that means. So this would be the idea that someone's enlightened unto salvation. Notice they've also tasted, second, of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. So those are two and three. Now here's the fourth. Notice in verse five, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, why am I laboring those points? If you have a systematic theology by Wayne Grudem, very good uh, scholar, but I think he's wrong here. He'll try to claim that's what's being described 
in the idea of a person being once enlightened and having tasted the heavenly gift, etc., he would say that that is something short of salvation, that that is describing a person who's perhaps had a hint or inkling as to the truth of the scriptures, but they never came to genuine faith. But what I'm going to show you is that the writer of Hebrews is depicting a salvific event. So let's begin one by one. First of all, let's look at the fact that the writer of Hebrews is talking about those who have been enlightened. The term enlightened comes from the term fotizo. Now, fotizo, you can hear the idea of light there, uh, the idea that you get from photo, etc. So fotizo is often used for regeneration, that God brings people to spiritual light. We go from darkness to light. That's what's being referred to here. In fact, notice it says once. They have once been enlightened. The term once there is hapax. It typically means once and never again. So this is something that's definitive in the life of a person. It's not repeated. Now, I say that because I think it emphasizes the fact that this is salvation, genuine. That, yes, they've once been enlightened. That is, they've been brought to regeneration. Now, let me show you some evidence elsewhere in the scriptures that this fotizo, this being enlightened, has to do with salvation, particularly regeneration. Turn your Bibles, if you will, back to Ephesians 1.18. You probably remember Bob preaching on this. Ephesians 1.18. Ephesians 1.18. Please turn your Bibles there. And you'll see how fotizo certainly has to do with regeneration, bringing people who are dead sinners in Adam to spiritual light, and therefore to spiritual life. <clears throat> Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Aha, same term that we have here in Hebrews 6.4. There's fotizo. So I pray that your eyes may be enlightened, the eyes of your heart, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So certainly there in Ephesians 1.18, Paul is writing to whom? He's writing to the elect. He's writing to those who have been brought to salvation. And he describes the act of regeneration as being enlightened. Same term that's being used here. So I think certainly we can't look at that and say, well, that's not really genuine salvation. I think the evidence is clear. This is genuine salvation. Now notice the next phrase. Not only were they enlightened, but they had tasted of the heavenly gift. Now here, Wayne Grudem will say, aha, tasted, would be something that's superficial, something that isn't a full meal, as it were. They're not really partaking in salvation. They're just nibbling at the edges. Well, that's not how tasted is used elsewhere. The term that's used here for tasted in the Greek is guamai. Sounds like something you might have on your fingers after you have cotton candy. Some guamai. (laughs) but it literally I think it would be best rendered to experience so it's just not the idea that you taste but it's the idea that you experience something and you and I will use sometimes taste in the same way they tasted the bitter defeat of losing that football game the Vikings yeah (laughs) thank you Rich yeah there's a lot of tasting of bitter defeat Uh, being a Vikings fan over the years we've lost four Super Bowls I hate to break it to you out there if you didn't know that, but we have. So we use taste in the same way. Now, let me show you a passage or two that, um, in fact, turn your Bibles to Matthew 16, 18. 
And you'll see how Jesus uses the term guamai to refer to tasting or experiencing something. Matthew 16, 18, notice Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in fact, I'll wait till I can hear some pages turning. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Oh, I'm sorry, am I off? <laughs> um, I think it is in 16, but maybe I'm wrong. Did I get it wrong? Oh, butterfingers. Yeah. I must have typed in the wrong thing. Well, I've got another passage if that doesn't work. <laughs> but it is in there. In fact, I know it's somewhere in 16, I think, because... Um, I'm sorry, 1628, I just hit a 1 instead of a 2. Because remember in the next chapter, 17, you have the transfiguration. And the Mount of Transfiguration is the evidence of Christ coming in his glory. Now the reason I say that is Bob actually wrote an article about this years ago. You'll have preterists who will take that verse and they'll say somehow Christ had to come at 70 AD because the disciples had to be alive at the coming of his kingdom or the coming of his glory. But that's a misreading of the text because in the very next chapter, chapter 17, you see the glorified Christ in his transfiguration. So that's what Jesus was referring to. But notice the key phrase there in verse 28 of Matthew 16 is taste death. Go am I. Now, what does it mean to taste death? You don't literally taste it with your taste buds. It means to experience it. So let's think about that. If that's the way it's rendered here, then it means not just that they have tasted the heavenly gift, but that they've experienced it. They've experienced the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't just nibbling around the edge and like uh, Grudem would claim in a systematic theology, a person who takes a bite of the burger but doesn't finish it because he doesn't like it. No, this is someone who has experienced the heavenly gift of salvation and all the things that accompany it. Let me show you another passage earlier in Hebrews. This is important because this shows you how the writer of Hebrews uses the term enlightened, or excuse me, tasted. Hebrews 2.9. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 2.9. You'll see Guamai used the same way. Hebrews 2.9. Now remember, when we're doing word studies, it's always most important to look at how the author used the same term. So it's even more important seeing how the writer of Hebrews used the term tasted than it is outside of the book of Hebrews, although certainly looking at other New Testament writers is important as well. Hebrews 2.9, the writer of Hebrews says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. Now here's the purpose. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So again, Jesus did what? He experienced death on behalf of his people so that we may live. So again, there you see tasted is used as experience. Now, why is that important? Because again, it shows us here that they weren't just tasting something in a superficial way, that they were experiencing the heavenly gift. Now, tied to that, notice we have a chi in the Greek. There's an and. So the heavenly gift is tied to being made partakers 
of the Holy Spirit. And that's very important because being a partaker of the Holy Spirit, having the Holy Spirit as a believer, is what we would call the sine qua non in Latin for the Christian experience, meaning without which something doesn't exist. So it is the, the essential ingredient. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Why? Because first of all, the Holy Spirit brought us to faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. But the moment you trusted in him, you're also deposited in the sphere of the Spirit. The Spirit dwells with you. Okay, now, let me show you a passage that shows us that the Holy Spirit dwelling within us is an essential ingredient. And I think that's why it's so important that it says they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Turn your Bibles to Romans 8, 9. And again, I'm sorry to have you turn all over, but I want you to see evidence that indeed being a partaker of the Holy Spirit is an essential element to being a Christian. That's exactly what Paul said in Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9. Remember in Romans 7, remember that chapter? That shows how bleak it is for a sinner to interact with the law. What the law couldn't do, though, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the Spirit could do. And so that's the great hope. In Romans 8, he's talking about the role of the Spirit in salvation. Romans 8, 9, Paul says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So stop there for just a moment. Remember, there's two spheres. All the unregenerate people outside of Christ, they are in the sphere of the flesh. The flesh isn't just the physical portion of who we are, but here it's a really a symbol of all that is in rebellion to God. So you're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. It's one or the other. So think of two camps. You're either in the camp of the enemy the flesh, you're opposed to the things of God, or you're in the camp of the Spirit. So remember, when Jesus ascends into the heavens, he promised that he would send whom? He was going to send the Holy Spirit. So he deposits the Holy Spirit upon us so that you and I reside in his camp. He brings us to faith. He's the one who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We, write in, we read about in Romans 8. He's the one who leads us to all the things that Christ has said. That's what he does. He, he gives us the scriptures that he inspired through the apostles, through the prophets. So that's what, how we should conceive of that structure. It's either you're in the flesh or in the spirit. So notice then he says, if, here's the conditional statement, Romans 8, 9, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now stop there. What's the spirit of God? It's the third person of the Trinity. That's the Holy Spirit. Then he says, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, again, third person of the Trinity, it's the Holy Spirit. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So notice, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. It's absolutely essential to be a Christian. Now, in that text, why does Paul refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ. Those are called genitive constructions. They're genitives of source. So in other words, it would be the idea of the Spirit that proceeds from God the Father or the Spirit that proceeds from the Son. So remember, the Holy Spirit is the one who is sent by both the Father and the Son. Yes, Bob. Uh, 
Do you want to tell people about the big debate in church history about oh, yeah, the filiquay yeah. clause? Yeah, we're, yeah, exactly. Why don't you go explain ahead. it? Well, the, in church history, there was a huge debate that led to a split, if I remember right. Yeah, there was a split. And uh, it had to do with whether the Father or the Son sent the Spirit. Right, and it's both. And and. The fact is, it's both yeah. <laughs> and, and the doctrine of the Trinity. But anyhow, there was such a dispute over it, some clause that they were going to put into one of their uh, statements, that there was a, I think, that, isn't that where Eastern Orthodoxy? That was, yes. Yeah. So there was a big split I think there. East, Eastern Orthodoxy wanted to uh, make a bigger emphasis on the Holy Spirit, so they split off. But as a matter of fact, neither Roman Catholicism nor Eastern Orthodoxy is the church yes. as defined in the Bible. Yeah. But in church history, there was a debate over it. Yeah. Isn't it sad, Bob, to think about that debate? You have two sides arguing, no, it's the Father, no, it's the Son. And when you look at the data, it's both. Yeah. <laughs> it's both and. There's no reason to, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So, yeah, Rich. Yeah, in Colossians 1, it says, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. No, does that mean that he's full of the Father too, or how does that work? <clears throat> no, it's no, just that would the be a, Spirit, right? So, when we're talking about the Trinity, what that's stating there in Colossians is that the Son is of the same essence as the Father. He has all the divine attributes, but he is not the Father. So that's an important distinction. So we have to distinguish between two heresies. One is Arianism or what we might call um, sometimes modalistic monarchianism. And that's the idea that Jesus isn't God. That's what Arius tried to claim. But that passage you just cited from Colossians, and we also see this in John 1.1, we see clearly that Jesus is God. But the idea of modalistic monarchianism is that sometimes the father, they, he would just change costumes. So sometimes he's the son, he has that costume on, then he gets rid of that costume and he puts on the Holy Spirit costume, then he gets rid of that and he puts on the father. So you have one God and one person. That is not what the Bible teaches. What Colossians is teaching, in the, the passage you just cited, is that Jesus has the same divine attributes as the father, but he is not the same person. So does that make sense? Right, so maybe is the common denominator the Holy Spirit that they both dwell in both of them or something? No, the or? fullness there has to do with Christ, not the Spirit. So it has to do with the fact that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. In him we have all we need. He's the creator of all things. He has all the divine attributes. There is nothing in Christ that is in any way short of true divinity, truly God. So in Christ, you really have someone who's truly God and truly man. And so that's not something where we say, well, he's about 50% God and he's 50% man. No, he is 100% God and 100% man. And, and Jesus Christ has always been there. I mean, of course, he was born at one point, but he, is, he was there. I mean, always there. Exactly. Self-existent, pre-existent as the second person, the Trinity. So that's a lot of times when you hear Bob and I give the gospel, we'll talk about how he existed as God, second person of the Trinity, and with God, other members of the Trinity from all eternity. And I like to often say that at a point in time in history, he became a man. So Christ forevermore is the God-man. 
in the hypostatic union. So what we have to do is we have to be careful when we read the scriptures. We have to do two things. We have to distinguish between the two natures of Christ. But second, we have to realize that they're always unified. So we distinguish between the two natures of Christ, but we don't separate them. If I separated, you're truly of body and truly of soul. And if I distinguish between your body and soul, I'm rightly understanding how God has made you a con- in, his, in your constituent parts a human being. But if I divided your body and soul, I've just killed you. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So we can't divide the natures, but we have to distinguish between them. So Jesus has truly a human and a truly divine nature. So yeah, does that help, Rich? So that passage, he's not the Father, but he's fully God as the second person of the Trinity. So when that woman touched her and was healed, something went out of him. That spirit went out of him or what went out of him when that woman... Yeah, it's literally, I think it was uh, dunamai, the, the power, dunamis. Yeah, so his power to heal is because of who he is. So his work is always attributed to his person. So remember we talked about the gospel? It's the person who Christ is and what he's done is work. And his work is only made possible by who he is. Because he's God, he has life in him. Right? He's the, the life-giving God. Absolutely. Yes. Levon. Um, I don't even know how to ask this, but I'm thinking of the Roman Catholic Eucharist where they say that Jesus is physically and his whole divinity also is in this wafer? Yes. Well, that's impossible because... God is present all over, all the time. Nothing can contain him. Yes. But as far as his divinity, you cannot separate Jesus' divinity from the Father's divinity. I mean, there are three separate persons, but one God. So how do they figure they can separate the divinity? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. So let's take the bread... Saying that Christ is in the bread is a grand form of panentheism, that he is in something in creation. That's a grand form of idolatry. Uh, we're commanded the, the Ten Commandments not to make any graven images. And that certainly is one. Second, Christ died once and for all. Hopox, another that term used, hopox, once and never again. So they're re-crucifying him, although they'll claim that they they'll claim that that's not true what they're doing. But they are, they're crucifying Christ time and time again at their, their Eucharist, their, their Mass. So the problem is, well, we see in the Bible, the Bible actually talks about remembrance. Mm-hmm. Why are we remembering if he keeps doing it? No, we're remembering what he did. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a grand form of idolatry. God is not dwelling in a bread or a wafer element. No, that, it'd be like saying, well, he's that chair or he's this wall. He's this bread element. No, um, God is spirit. And those who worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. And by the way, talking about Christ in particular, he dwells in the hypostatic union. Remember, in 1 John, one of the tests for orthodoxy was, was Christ come in the flesh. What's very interesting is that's not only valid for Christ's first coming, but it's also valid for his second coming. When Christ returns, remember at the rapture, it says the Lord himself. This is 1 Thessalonians 4.16. In 17, the Lord himself descends with the shout of the archangel. Well, that means it's the Lord himself. He's coming bodily for his people. So 
we're not to be taken off guard by looking for Christ in a wafer or looking for a mystical Christ or maybe he's in the closet here or maybe he's over there. No, when he comes, we're going to know it. And he's coming bodily for his people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I understand all of that. Okay. Perfectly. Yep. Oops. Yeah, I fully understand all of that. Totally agree with you. My question is, how can they say his divinity is is all? I mean, God is spirit. God is divine. When I say God, I'm talking about the Trinity. Yeah. But so, how can they separate his divinity, the, the divinity of Jesus, from the divinity of the Holy Spirit and the Father? Do you understand? How do they explain that, that you could separate them? Now you're talking about particularly in in the Eucharist? In the Eucharist, yeah. Yeah, well, again, I I think that's why I'm kind of bringing up what I think the issue is with the second person of the Trinity is, number one, you can't take God and place him in an object in creation because the creator is distinct from from his creation. That applies to Christ. But the second reason I think it's very bad is because he's crucified once and for all. They're doing it over and over. But the third is when Christ comes... For his people, he's doing it bodily. He's not coming as a wafer. He's coming bodily. So that's a big problem. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, uh, Levon, I, I was, uh, one of my sermons, I, I have so much Ephesians in my brain, I can't tell you what Sunday I preached what or if I even did it yet. Did I deal with Acts 17, the handmade deities? Did I do that one yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I already did it. Good. Um, but remember Demetrius? The silversmith. The reason they started a riot was because Paul says that God's made with hands or handmade deities are no gods at all. Amen. Okay. So, well, if this silver thing that I made is not somehow deity, I can't sell it for big money. And... This trade of ours, says Demetrius, will fall into disrepute, and they start a riot. Well, what's a piece of bread that's a deity if it's not a handmade deity? Who made the bread? Yeah. Okay. And so the fact is that Roman Catholicism is paganism, with a very slight Christian dress added to it, <laughs> I do not consider Roman Catholicism Amen. Christian. Amen. It's wicked idolatry that keeps millions and millions, if not more, billions of people in perpetual bondage to religious works. And they work, 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 do your duty, do what we tell you, turn your brain off. Just go through the works. Make sure your kids are put into the same bondage and and pile up so much guilt on those kids they never get to leave. And it's a wicked religion. And the uh, feckless evangelicalism is powerless to deal with it because they're too afraid to... They might offend somebody by telling the truth. Yeah. So that's why I like reading Luther, because he didn't mind offending <laughs> Rome. That's true. Because they need it. And see, we need to have compassion on the victims of Rome. Yeah, I know. Because what you need to know is those people who have to go 
this this is deity, this handmade deity like Demetrius had. At least his was made out of silver. Uh, the fact is, those people that are dutifully giving their money, going through the motions, they are victims of Rome. Yes. They have no power. They have no authority. They can't change anything. They can't tell the priest anything. They can't tell the bishops. They have nothing but servile duty that they have to just keep going through. Yeah, and, they, and, and they're, they're kept from true life in the gospel because they go on and on and on and on and on with this stuff. And so I know a lot of you have relatives that are stuck in that, but we need to have compassion on those people by telling them the truth. We're not helping Roman Catholics by failing to tell them that they're stuck in a false religion. Amen. And uh, well, it's been here for thousands of years. Well, so is Hinduism. You've got to think rationally. Just because something's been around doesn't mean it's right. Amen. So, Levan, does, does that help? Um, one other thing I want to mention, just regarding God. So we have one God in three persons. Yeah. Each person, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, are shown in the Scriptures to be individuals within the Trinity. So think about um, the passage we looked at last week, Ephesians 4.30, where we're commanded, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. Well, as I mentioned last week, you can't grieve a force. like You can't grieve electricity or gravity. Uh, so this is certainly a person. Yeah. And you also see it at, um, for example, the Trinity in Jesus' baptism. Remember at the baptism, you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, Remember, he's not a dove. He descends like a dove. Okay, it's a simile. Okay, it's similar to a dove. He, he descends, the Holy Spirit, that's the third person of the Trinity. Who does the Holy Spirit descend upon? The second person of the Trinity, the Son. And then you hear the Father in heaven say, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. So you have three members of the Trinity, all distinct, all equally God, in one passage. Now, what's unique about Jesus Christ in what we call the hypostatic union is not only does he have 100% of divinity, he also has 100% of humanity. And that forever is attached to him as the person of Christ. And so that's why I'm laboring the point, when you look at the Roman Catholic view of the Eucharist, not only is it attacking his divinity, but it's also attacking his humanity. Because when he comes for us, he's not coming as a, a wafer or bread, he's coming bodily. That was the test for orthodoxy at his first advent. Christ come in the flesh. They were denying that he came in the flesh. No, he didn't come in a wafer. He didn't come in a bottle. He came in the flesh. That's the same thing for his second coming. So we're not to look for him in a Eucharist. We're not to look for him in a corner here or there. What you and I to do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is remember what he's done when he came in his flesh. So that's what I'm going to help you distinguish. Does that, does that help? The th- th- <clears throat> okay, very good. I'm trying to figure out how can they say that his divinity is in this world? Yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> they're just, yeah, they're just confused. They're liars. Yeah. They're liars. They talk about, right, but you can't separate the divinity of the Father from the Son 
Well, that's why I want to, That's why I'm a little concerned. Um, we can distinguish between the persons within the Trinity. Yeah. One God and three persons. Yeah, but we can distinguish between the persons. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. So we want to be careful. Just like um, again, when we talk about Christ, we can distinguish between His divinity and His humanity, but we can't separate it. Right. Right. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. By the way, <clears throat> regarding the Trinity, I'm sorry, Scott, I'll come right to you. <clears throat> when you come across Muslims that you're witnessing to, they will try to claim that you believe in a contradiction, that you believe in one God and three gods, <clears throat> and that's not what we believe. It would be a contradiction to believe that in one God and three gods at the same time and in the same relationship. But what we believe is in one God in three persons. So it's not one God and three gods, it's one God in three persons, just like we have one government in three branches. We don't have three separate governments, although maybe that's going to happen someday. <laughs> Things aren't going so well in America right now. So, but and, and by the way, any analogy you give will fall short yeah, right. uh, because in the Trinity there's perfection, there's, equal, there's an equality that you don't have in any human ranks or... Uh, institutions, but nonetheless, you can understand what I'm saying. So it's not a, a logical contradiction to believe in one God and three persons. Yes, Scott. I was just going to s- emphasize that um, the <clears throat> Eucharist and the Mass isn't just idolatry; it's abominable. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Scott. Very uh, well said. So my whole point in showing you this, though, is to show you that if you have the Holy Spirit, if you're a partaker of the Holy Spirit that we see right here, it means you're a believer. So the reason I'm saying that is I want to take this warning very seriously. I don't want to do what Wayne Grudem did, is to say, well, this isn't really describing a true believer. I think that that's a hard sell. I think that the writer of Hebrews is describing a genuine conversion experience. Let's go on to the next one. Not only are they partakers of the Holy Spirit, but notice... They've tasted, again, our term is guamai, the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, the fact that they experienced the good word of God means they came to salvation through the word. Remember Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. It's the word of God that converts. So I think certainly that's what is in the mind of the writer of Hebrews. But notice they've also experienced the powers of the age to come. And in my opinion, I could be wrong in this, and we could ask Bob if he agrees with this. He studied this much more. But the powers of the age to come probably here is a reference to the spiritual gifts, the gifts that have been given the church, that indeed the partakers of the Holy Spirit, those who are truly regenerate, are those who are deposited real gifts by the Holy Spirit for the sake of the rest of the body. So that's something, for example, we see in Romans chapter 12. Remember, Paul commands, if you have a gift, you have to use it. If it's teaching, teaching. If it's in helping, it's in helping. You have to use the gift that God has given you. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14. Every single, and and Bob taught us this, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 4, that Christ, remember, sent gifts as he ascended? So yes, every single person has become a partaker of the powers of the age to come because we've been deposited and given the Holy Spirit. So my point in saying all this, I think certainly conversion is being referred to here. 
But notice now we come to the warning in verse 6. Notice the idea that they have fallen away. Now the term fallen away there comes from an aorist participle of peripipto. And let me read you a scholar. This is one of the best scholars in the book of Hebrews. His name is William Lane. He says this. He says, quote, he says, the aorist tense indicates a decisive moment of commitment to apostasy, unquote. Now, the reason I'm citing that is this idea of falling away really is something that happens in a decisive moment. In other words, this is really depicting someone who is an apostate. That's really the warning, that if they fall away, notice what he says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, notice in the underline, does everyone see the term impossible? Ah, dunatos. Literally, it is, it's not possible. It's, it's without power. Um, if something is dunatos that has power, ah, dunatos, the alpha privative on there, shows that they don't have power. So this is impossible. What I want you to understand is in the Greek text, that term impossible is actually thrown here. So if you're reading in the Greek, you actually see it in the beginning of verse 4. Isn't that shocking? Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews is doing that for emphasis. He's emphasizing something. See, Greek word order doesn't matter. They can say, you and I would have to say, I ran to the store. They could say, store I ran, or I store ran, or they could throw all, it's all jumbled up. Okay, but what they will do is for emphasis, they will put a word forward to show you what's being emphasized. So what's being emphasized is that if you have a person who had this experience of conversion and then left it and went to another God, went into idolatry, as it were, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, as I say that, let's remind ourselves of what the situation was that the writer of Hebrews was addressing. Uh, by the way, for greater information and in, in more in depth, listen to Bob CIC lessons that he gave in Hebrews chapter 6. They're very helpful. But the situation that the writer of Hebrews was addressing was you had a real possibility that Jewish believers would want to go back to the temple and leave Christ that they couldn't see for temple Judaism that they could. Remember, the temple was still there. This is prior to 70 AD. And they had a priesthood that could be seen. They had sacrifices that could be seen. They had the glory and the splendor of the temple edifice. And so think about how that would weigh on these Jews who had to instead believe in a Christ they couldn't see meeting in homes of just individuals and other church members. They didn't have the grandeur, the pomp, the circumstance. They didn't have anything visible. They had to believe on what was unseen rather than what was seen. Now, the reason I say that is I think it helps us to understand what he, why he says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Repentance is a turning. Metoneo, I think, here. And the idea is to turn. Initially, every one of us, when we came to faith in Christ, we turned from idolatry which is anything other than Christ alone, and we turn to Christ. But the idea is that if you turn from Christ, you have nowhere else to go. 
That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn to. Do you remember, I love that in John 6, when the disciples, and I'm talking about the wider group other than the 12, they leave Jesus because they're so offended by the doctrines of grace when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. They're so offended by him teaching that that they leave. But then he looks at the 12 and he says, are you also going to leave? And what does Peter say? He says, Lord, where else do we have to go? For you're the one with the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter knew there was nowhere else to turn. He couldn't repent. So that's the problem. There's nowhere else to repent to. And what's more, the writer of Hebrews says, since, again, you crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. He was crucified, what? Once and for all. Never again. Crucified once and for all for his people so that we would repent and turn to him and to never turn back. So this is a real warning that it is impossible to renew to repentance those who have been converted but turn from Christ because there's nowhere else to turn to. So here's the dilemma that I think this puts us in. There are three options to understand that passage. And I think you can boil down the interpretations to three regarding Hebrews chapter 6. First of all, you can say, yep, true believers can fall away. They can lose their salvation. That's one option from Hebrews 6. Second option, this is the Wayne Grudem option. True believers are not being depicted in Hebrews 6. But there's a third option that's far better. And that option is that true believers, the elect, will 100% of the time heed the warnings of God found in the scriptures. And that these warnings are genuine, but they are 100% effective for the people of God. That's why I have this uh, funny little illustration. It's something that Bob had mentioned when he and I were doing radio once, and it stuck with me. Think of the analogy, if there was ever some maintenance done on an elevator where the elevator was gone and you had an empty elevator shaft. Well, they would often put signs up that look something like this, danger elevator shaft. You can't step there. You'll fall to your death. Now, that sign can and often are 100% effective. People see that. They go, I'm not stepping in there. I'll fall to my death. 100% effective. Is the risk of falling real? Oh, yes. But the sign, the warning, is 100% effective. That's how God uses the scriptures. The scriptures provide real warnings that 100% of the time are going to be heeded by the elect so they don't fall away. Bob? I thought of that analogy. I I remember both in Bible college and seminary having debates about this. And I think the problem is um, not having enough appreciation for God's use of means. Yes. And there seems to be a lot of people who think that if, unless somebody actually does it, then it's not valid. But that is not understanding the New Testament. Right. Jesus said that he'll lose none of them. Those that the Father give me will come to me, and I will lose none of them. Amen. Okay? So if Christ actually keeps his own, 
you can't say, well, unless one of who really was his own actually ends up in hell, then it's not valid. How can you say that? Because that's, that's not uh, a reasonable position, in my opinion. Doesn't have, God have the power to keep his own? But, Ken, why, why, why issue the warning? Because it was a real issue. That's what you need to get in your mind, okay? I remember a teacher helping us with this. But So here's this little bitty house church. They don't even own a building. Nobody wears a robe or garb. They, they don't have a bishops and archbishops. and They're just ordinary people in ordinary dress showing up in a little house church and, and maybe don't even have their own version. I mean, yeah. written scriptures, they probably have to memorize. You know, they didn't have Bibles like we have. Right. And they gather. And right not far away, the temple is still standing. It's one of the evidences that... Hebrew was written before 70 AD. Absolutely. So the temple's still standing. And it's beautiful. Herod's temple, the, you have the, the second temple, you have the priesthood, the animals, the blood, the smells, the bells, the day of atonement, the court of the Gentiles, the high priest going into the holiest. So you have all of this grandeur and, and beauty, and you got some Christians sitting around praying and believing what they can't see. So it was a real temptation. And then, Eric's right, the first word, I got my Greek right here, impossible, yeah. if you go back. And so Hebrews is saying that the blood of Jesus was shed once for all. Amen. Okay? And we have something greater. We have the heavenly reality. Yes. The, the myriads of angels. We have the glory. You just can't see it. And so... It's a lack of faith to go back. So let's say somebody is there and says, I can't see the blood of Jesus. I can't see heaven. I can't see the angels. I can't see Jesus. All I have is promises, but I can't see the temple. I can't see the high priest. I can't see the blood. I can't see the animals. I'm going to go with the real. If somebody does that. Yeah. Impossible. That's right. You go, you'll never come back. That's right. And you're going to go to hell. That's right. Now, what we're arguing is if whether that person was ever really a Christian. It's a theoretical argument. I would say the fact they left would indicate they weren't. Right. They went out from us because they were not really of us. Hmm. But the valid warning is still there for the real elect, and they're seeing that. Amen. They're going, I'm not going back. I'm going to stay right here and believe the promises of God. Dear saints, God will keep you. And it was pointed out long ago, because when I went to Bible college, it was Assemblies of God, and they believed in backsliding. We used to say facetiously, uh, a preacher came by and says, well, I know you Pentecostals believe in backsliding, but do you have to keep practicing it? (laughs) He he was kind of tongue-in-cheek. The point was, they didn't believe this because they thought, well, they'd come back. Right. They'd backslide and they come back and they backslide and they come back. That's not what this is saying. You don't backslide and then come back. Right. It's impossible. Impossible. You fall down the elevator shaft. Yeah, that's right. You're not coming back. That's right. Okay. So I've gotten more emails. I got people just irate with me over the article I wrote about this. Okay. But wow. why they are so adamant. That people need to 
uh, be thinking they're going to lose their salvation. I don't know why they feel so strongly about it. Or they're telling me, well, you're not issuing a real warning. Hmm. Well, no, this is a real warning. That's right. And if it scares, here's what one of my uh, teachers says in, in seminary, a good one. This should scare the hellishness out of you. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Rightly so. See, oh, man. Yeah. I got to stick with Christ. That's what it's designed to do. That's right. And Amen. so, thank you, Eric. I just preach it for what it says. Let's just preach it for what it says. Yes, um, Eric. Well, I don't know if I'm kind of repeating what Bob said. I won't, you know, Bob said it better. But what occurs to me is, especially when you mention that the Greek starts out with the word impossible, yeah. it's almost like Paul, this is a hypothetical, and it's an impossible hypothetical. In other words, you've got somebody who is a believer, and in the case of that person who meets all of these criteria, they fall away, which it's not going to happen because Jesus said no one would snatch his, his sheep away. Exactly. Well said. Yeah, so when you look at the three options, Eric, you're absolutely right. The first option is true believers can fall away. Well, we know that's not possible. My sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Remember the negation of the subjunctive mood? There's not even a possibility of future perishing. So no one can ever perish. So we know that no one who is a true believer will fall. But this passage seems to indicate a warning to true believers. But what Bob and I are saying is, yes, this can be a warning sign that's 100% effective, just like you would have in an elevator shaft. Just because the elevator shaft has a warning doesn't mean someone fell down. That, that can be 100% effective. And when we look at the means of grace found in the scriptures, they are 100% effective for the elect. That's the better understanding. We don't have to jump through hoops like Wayne Grudem does to say, well, it's not really depicting salvation here. No, let's take the language seriously for what it's saying. So, again, the three options, true believers can fall away. That's not valid. Second, true believers aren't being depicted. That's not valid. The third option is this is a real warning, but one that's heeded. And, by the way, not just this one, but all the warnings in Scripture, 100% of of the time by the elect. That's the best way to understand it. Remember in the scriptures, we can have no contradiction. You can't be eternally secure and not eternally secure at the same time in the same relationship. That's a contradiction that you can't have. So you have to resolve that. So here clearly, I think we're giving the best resolution to that. Yes, Nancy. I love this passage for assurance of salvation. Just a little farther ahead in Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Yes, to the uttermost. Yes, yes. In fact, um, we'll see that same promise um, just later in a few verses where he'll say, um, but we expect better things of you, brethren, things accompanying salvation, even though we speak like this. So we're going to come to that, but that's a very good reading. Thank you, Nancy. Excellent. Yes, uh, Ryan. Yeah, so it's been a while since I've studied this passage, and I had done some reading and some looking into it. And yeah. the, what I had read about was they would agree that this is referring to a Christian 100%. What they would, I don't want to say disagree, is with the fallen away. Yeah. And they would say earlier in Hebrews, it's talking about the wilderness wanderers. And I'm sorry, I didn't see hear that. I, the wilderness wanderers. Okay, wilderness yeah, wanderers. The Jews, yep. you know, right after, yeah. And we see a similar warning in chapter 3, and I believe in chapter 10. 
And chapter 3 seems to be referring to that. Yeah. So they would tie this passage to the wilderness wanderers at Kadesh Barnea, yep. and they wouldn't enter into the promised land. That's right. So they have fallen away. They rejected God. They wouldn't go there. Then there is a, a loss of rewards, I believe is the term they would go. They couldn't enter the promised land. Excuse me. But Moses intercedes for them, right? They are forgiven, but they're not able to enter. Yeah. So even though they wanted to, they tried on their own, they couldn't. They, they weren't able to enter, but there still was a forgiveness. So he would, and the, what I had read about, said that this isn't a, a full apostasy of falling away, but maybe a minor thing where there's more of a loss of rewards in, in that regard. So yeah, Ryan, tying it back in Hebrew. Very good. Um, you know, I would just disagree with that. Let, let me show you one of the reasons why I would disagree with that. First of all, the language that I talked about really is referring to regeneration. It really is. I, I don't think we can dance around the idea that they were partakers of the heavenly gift, that they had tasted those things, that they were partakers of the Holy Spirit. The language seems to be indicating a believer. The other reason why I think salvation is at issue is turn your Bibles to Hebrews 6, verse 9. And this is kind of hinting at what um, Nancy was driving at. Hebrews 6, 9. Notice where it says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So the idea of salvation is at stake. So to me, the far better idea is that these are real warnings not to apostatize, but the real warning can apply even if there's never one single believer, a genuine believer in Christ who apostatizes. Just like that picture, you can have no one ever go down that elevator shaft, but it's a real threat and a real warning. In the same way, the warnings in scriptures can be 100% and are 100% effective for the elect. So what I'm trying to do is to not mute clearly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. I think because he says we accompany we expect better things of you things that accompany salvation. I think the issue is salvation. The issue is falling away so as not to be restored. I think that that is the issue. So what I want to do is take that data seriously and say how do I understand that knowing that true believers cannot fall away? Well, I think the only way to understand is to say, look, these warnings are 100% effective for the elect. Um, so that's how I would understand. Yes. Yeah, I've seen that too. But, Ryan, you, part of the danger is that Protestants are creating their own quasi-purgatory. Yeah, oh, that's a good point, right? Okay, cause so, well, you don't actually, you know, you're not going to go into the big heavily assembly mentioned later and Hebrews, but you'll have this other thing where you're sort of stuck here. But again, if you look at all of this, in our day, a lot of it is really similar to going back to Rome. Yes, it is. Because the same temptation is existing. I had a good friend who went back to Rome and raised his family in Rome. And I don't know where he's at with the Lord, but I'd be very, very concerned because they have the cathedrals, the the smells, the bells, the gold, the silver, the pomp, the circumstance, the real blood, okay, yeah. just like they had in temple Judaism. And in fact, Roman Catholicism is in a fake version of temple Ju- Judaism that was created yeah. 
to create the same kind of temptation. Priesthood, the whole thing. This warned about here. They get the priesthood. They get all this stuff. That's exactly what's being warned about in Hebrews. Yeah. And I know people that went back to that who were serving Christ. And they think, I don't know, I mean, I don't understand. I saw the guy one time after he did that. He said, well, kids like it. We got, you know, look at all these years and look at all the centuries and just kind of the family's no longer angry with us. Okay, listen. What do you think happened to these Christians when they came to Christ? The Jews who came to Christ in the book of Hebrews. What happened to them? Yeah, wow, they lost. Their Jewish family considered them dead. Yeah. You're dead. We don't know you. We never had a son. We don't even know who you are. Don't talk to us. Wow. Okay? They lost everything so that they could have Christ. And some versions of Roman Catholicism do the same thing. Amen. If you come to Christ, you might as well be dead. And that's from Christians. Yes. Yeah. We don't know you. Stay away from us. Right. And I would say this with, with heartfelt passion. Don't listen to the siren song of Rome. Yeah. Because you're being slurred to your doom. Amen. Purgatory is a lie. They're not going to pay to get you out of there. It's not going to work. If you forsake Christ, impossible. Amen. It's one thing to do. Cling to Christ. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. We may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear. What shall man do unto me? Amen. And Hebrews is so pertinent and so comforting. And we don't have much, but we have each other and we have the Lord. We don't have much in this world, I mean, but we've got everything for eternity. Amen. You know, as, as you're concluding there, Bob, I'm thinking this really illustrates the importance of living by faith, not by sight. Amen. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8. The Hebrews were tempted to go back to live for temple Judaism, to live by sight. Those who want to go back to Roman Catholicism today, they want to live by sight. Those who want to do enneagrams or different forms of mysticism, what do they really want to do? They want to live by sight, not by faith. Now, when Paul talks about living by faith, not by sight, we see that not only in, for example, Romans 8, but we see it in the book of Hebrews. I want you to realize that living by faith does not mean we have no evidence. That's one of the problems that evangelicalism had in the early 20th century is they believe because we live by faith, we have no evidence for what we believe. We just take a blind leap of faith into the dark. No, that's not what the scriptures are saying. The faith that we have is grounded in the evidence of scripture. The scripture that has been authenticated to be true because of predictive prophecy. Because think about 333 different historically verifiable prophecies fulfilled in the first advent of Christ alone. Zechariah 11.12 says he'd be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. He was. Micah 5.2 says he'd be born in Bethlehem 700 years prior to him being born. He was. On and on you can go. The scriptures themselves are all the evidence we need. And that's why we're to live by faith in that evidence, not in what we see. If we live by what we see, we're going to fall away down the elevator shaft. But if we'll live by believing in the evidence that we have in the scripture you and I will cling to Christ.
forevermore. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And I'm sorry, Rich, um, hold on to your question next time. And by the way, I want to mention, as soon as we finish this, I want to have a session where we can just have questions and answers. So if you have questions, maybe you've got 12 of them, write them down. Come to, um, or, uh, come to us and let's have a session where we just go through questions and answers regarding all the material that we covered. And um, maybe you need a, a different handout that you missed. Um, we'll, we'll try to supply that to you. Um, so anyway, my point is I want you all to be able to answer or have questions answered, ask questions, and we'll come together and go through these things because I know a lot of data was thrown at you and a lot of this is very deep. So uh, let's be uh, close in prayer here, though, and we'll do that in the next couple of weeks when we get back together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your promises. We thank you for your warnings in Scripture that you really use them 100% of the time for the, for the salvation of your elect, that they are effective, Lord. We thank you for the means of grace, uh, the Lord's Supper that we're going to be celebrating. We thank you that you use these things to keep us remembering the great promises so that we persevere to the last day. I pray for Bob as he preaches to us. Give him clarity and give us ears to hear so that we not just be hearers of the word, but also doers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.